we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago uh, with the weather and everything. We kind of took a, a, a pivot last week. But what we've been talking about is in this series, okay, is, is this in him concept, this new man. Who is this new man? What is he? And what we've come to establish strictly through using scripture. And that's the thing I want you to remember. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't me just giving you words or trying to encourage you or pump you up. I'm strictly reading out what the Bible says. We're just reading it slowly and really taking our time to focus on what is being said there. And so the understanding here is that when you become born again, okay, those words by themselves that John used in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, Nicodemus should tell you something. Because to be born again means that you're starting over, right? As when something is born, a new life is formed. Technically, it's formed before that, but you guys, we're not going to get into the semantics there. But that is when we come into this world. When we are born again, that old man that we were died and was raised with Christ at his resurrection. That is what the scripture said. We've read this over and over and over again. Like, we need to understand that. Because it's not like he just made you a little bit better than what you were. He also didn't crucify your flesh. How do we know that? Because he tells us to do it. That means, will you still sin? Yes. Does that sin separate you from God? No, it cannot. That new man is sinless. We still fight our flesh. We still deal with some stuff like that. But the thing is, is that we've got to remember, is that we are made new in him. And then we begin to look at, okay, that's great. So why Jesus came in the first place? I mean, what was he doing? And we took some time going through the Old Testament to look at what he was doing prior to him arriving on the earth. And then, if you were here Christmas Eve, we talked about the moment of his birth. How big a deal that was. And how all of these things came around. And we kicked over some sacred cows with the Christmas story, right? Nobody, I didn't get any hate mail, so I'm assuming it went okay. But there's a whole lot of stuff that we've held on to deeply that we have no reason to believe that. Like the whole idea of three wise men. There weren't three, there's a bunch of them. And so the idea of where this narrative comes from and all of this stuff has nothing to do with scripture. But what the moment of Jesus' birth is the moment that the world began to change. Because now the long-awaited Messiah has arrived. So we're going to start to look at today what he was doing while he was here. Because we have to understand that. Because he tells us that we are his ambassadors. We're his representatives. So we need to know what he was doing and why he was doing it because it's our responsibility to carry on that work. Is that a fair statement? I think so. The ministry of reconciliation has been given to us. So we read this verse, 1 John 3, 8. It says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The purpose of him doing this was to destroy the work of the devil. The word manifested means what? It means that now he's here. It existed before, but now he is here. And so when, the reason he came to this earth was to destroy the works of the devil. And what we did is we began to trace that out. And what did we decide that that was? The ultimate work of the devil was sin. Because it was sin that separated us from God. It was sin that brought death into the world. And it also brought sickness into the world because sickness is nothing more than slow death. God has created an immune system in us that if we, we can fight off basic stuff, your colds and your flus and things like that on its own. But those who have a weakened immune system or go through some sort of an autoimmune disease, a common cold could kill them. So God has put something inside of us to fight that off. But all of that was brought about because of sin. Through sin, death entered to the world. God came, Jesus came into this earth to destroy sin, remove it from our lives. That new man has no sin in him and never will. He cannot. 
according to Scripture. But why did Jesus do the things that he did? We know all the stories, we've, because this is the part where we get into um, the life of Jesus, and you hear this all the time. What are some of the things that Jesus did? Well, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the leper, he uh, cast out demons, right? He did all of these things, but we never begin to ask ourselves, why did he do it? And so today what I'm going to show you is how significant this was. I showed you the significance of his arrival. If you weren't here for Christmas Eve, go back, go online, listen to it. It's all on iTunes. It's on the website. You can find this stuff. But, but with the significance of him arriving when he did was huge. That the men from the east, the, the magi were watching for it. They knew the sign. They came and they looked for him. That the shepherds, we talked about all of that kind of stuff. But now he's here. Why did he do what he did? Well, here's the thing that you need to understand. In the Jewish mindset, there were four miracles that only God himself could perform through his Messiah. There were four physical conditions of mankind that only God could correct. That was it. And so it was believed that when God would send his Messiah, that these four things would be a sign of him. And what would happen is if one of these miracles were to take place, then they would go to the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, and they would begin to investigate. And as you're going to see today is you're going to see a lot of this stuff begin to make sense of the stories you've read of why things happened the way they did. Now, what are these four miracles? Well, I've got them up here for you. It's the cleansing of a leper. It's the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit. It's the healing of a birth defect, somebody born with a certain ailment. And then the raising of the dead after three days. In other words, the fourth day. And I'm going to explain all of this. But this has to do with the curse, it has to do with the fleshly nature of man, and the belief that God caused some of these things. And in doing so, that it was uh, God's will that they had it, so only God himself could remove it. So let's start with the first one, leprosy. It was believed that leprosy was inflicted by God himself. They would call leprosy the finger of God. So there were three incidents of leprosy that we see afflicting the Israelites in the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh. First of all, Moses. Remember what happened? He would stick his hand into his cloak. It was one of the signs. And he'd pull it out and be covered in leprosy. He'd put it back into his cloak. He'd pull it out and it was healed. It was one of the signs to Pharaoh. That was one. Miriam was afflicted with leprosy because she spoke out against Moses. And it was a punishment. And then another one was King Uzziah, if you remember these stories, and we're not going to get into all of this stuff, but I'm just giving you some facts, that there was a, he went into the holy place, unlawfully, wasn't supposed to be there, and burned incense on that altar. It wasn't, it wasn't the incense of God, and only the priest could do it. So he is afflicted with leprosy by God as a judgment for what he had done, and ultimately dies about it, because of it. So now there's an incident involving a man named Naaman, and I'm going to read this to you. And he is, he's going to have leprosy. He's going to go to the king of Israel, and Elijah is going to heal him. So let's look at this. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Okay, so Naaman's a leper. We know that. Why do we know that? Because it just told us. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was in the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. 
So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. That's a lot of cash he's carrying with him. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. They want the king to heal him. That's not what the girl said. It didn't say the king. It said the prophet. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. The king's concerned. You're sending someone to him from Syria. Okay, This is a Gentile. Naaman is a Gentile. He's not an Israelite. From Syria with the disease given by God that expecting the king to heal. The reason he tore his clothes because that is a sign of mourning. In other words, what he thinks is going to happen here is you're sending something to him that is impossible for him to do, all in the effort to start a war with Israel. That's the whole idea, start a quarrel with me. Because Syria was very strong then, and Naaman was a mighty warrior. So he's concerned, and that's why he makes the statement, am I God to kill and to make alive? He can't do this. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, why do you think he told him that? Why did he tell him to go and wash versus why didn't he come out and just lay hands on him and heal him? Because look what happens next. Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the pl place and heal the leprosy. That's what he was expecting to happen, but that's not what Elisha did. Why did Elisha not go up to him? Because it was forbidden. A leper was supposed to be camped outside of Jerusalem if they were an Israelite. If Elisha goes out and goes near the man and touches him, he would become unclean and would have to ceremonially cleanse himself again. So becoming unclean to a prophet is a problem. They continue to do what we call mikvah. They continue to wash themselves. That's the whole point of that whole sacrificial system is to become cleansed, all right? It wasn't a forgiveness of sin. So there were rules. A leper in there, when they were walking around and there was people passing them by, they would have to yell out leprosy or, or make known that they had leprosy that the way people could avoid them because if they came near them, they would be unclean and they would have to cleanse. So instead of coming out, he sends them to Jordan. He says, you go and wash seven times. Damon's ticked off, as you would be. Right? You come in there, you're thinking, here's the guy that can help me, and what's he tell you to do? Go take a bath. That's essentially what's happened. Because think about it. In the mind of a Syrian, what does cleansing have to do with anything? Like, you bathe when you stink. Maybe. I don't know. You're in a desert. I've got to think you always stink. Like, you get out of the shower, and you come out, and you already need more deodorant because you smell. But that's what's happening here. And so he says, hey, you go and wash. So name is mad. Verse 12, are not the Abana and the uh, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He's not getting it. It's not making sense to him. He's thinking he's taking a bath. So he turned and he went away in rage. He's pretty mad. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says you wash and be clean? Now, that's a fair statement. Because had he said, go get ten, ten bulls and sacrifice them, not a problem. He'd have been all over it. Put that in our own lives, right? 
There are times that where God tells us to do something weird, and we're kind of t- we're like, no, 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 that's not going to work. I mean, this morning we were watching a video of Catherine Kuhlman, which you may or may not know who she was. She was a healing evangelist back uh, from really the 40s up until she died in 1976. We just found this out this morning. I couldn't remember when she died. But there were times when somebody was healed, and she would say, hey, their knee was healed. Go run. Why are they doing that? Not because they need the exercise. I mean, maybe they do. But it's, it's testing that healing, right? It's showing something. He's testing him, saying, hey, go and cleanse. There's something Jewish that's going on here. So if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have done it? How much more than when he says, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and he and all his aides and came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. All that stuff he brought with him, he wanted to give to Elisha. Elijah refused to take any of it. Why? Because it wasn't his work. It was God's work. You don't get paid for the stuff that God does. You don't sell miracles. And so he refused, and, and, and Naaman goes on his way, and one of Elisha's servants gets a little greedy and goes, eh, you know, he said he'd take a little. And he takes some, and bad things happen to that servant. But that's besides the point. But there is no biblical record of an Israelite ever having been cleansed of leprosy. This guy here is not an Israelite. This is really the only story of it. Lepers were condemned by God. They were live in shame. They live outside the camp. Look at Leviticus 13, verse 45. This is the, the telling of the lepers, what they must do. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. had to shave his head. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Think he's trying to make a point here? Unclean, unclean, unclean. It's mentioned so many times. But in the mind of an Israelite, this is given by God for punishment of something, and very likely was. It was some sort of a judgment. They lived outside of the camp, and if anybody came near them, they had to yell, unclean. These were the instructions that they had to follow. However, in a case that a leper was cleansed, they would then bring a guilt or a trespass offering to the priest to make atonement. They'd have to show themselves to the priest to show that they had been uh, cleaned, they were, they were cleaned, and they would say, yes, you are. Then they would make a sacrifice for the, whatever had caused them to do this. You guys following what I'm saying? Okay, because leprosy was caused by God is what their mindset was. That's why they called it the finger of God. And since it was caused by God, that they believed that only God or his Messiah could cleanse a leper. Did Jesus cleanse lepers? Yes, he did. It's the first messianic miracle that we see, right? There were lepers that came to him and he said, yeah, go and be cleansed. Now, there's another thing. The casting out of a deaf and mute spirit or a deaf and dumb spirit. In other words, they, they couldn't hear and they couldn't speak. Now, the Jews practice exorcism, okay, the casting out of demons. All right, don't let your mind go to the, uh, the exorcist or anything weird like that. But they had a formula that they would follow, and it would involve three steps. The first thing they would do is they would speak to the demon and ask its name. They felt that it was important that they got its name. Then the demon would reply, often using the voice of the individual, telling them their name. Then that priest or whomever would cast out the demon by his name. And that's how they did it. You see that pattern being followed today by so-called exorcists, right? And you, you see some weird stuff. I mean, look up 
don't look up, but it's on YouTube. Just trust me. Don't go look it up. It's weird. Because, and the reason I know about this stuff is I get people that will send me links to things and say, what do you think about this? Or this is going on here. There's a bunch of weird stuff out there. I mean, the idea that they'll, they'll, they'll coax the name out of it, and it'll be some weird name, and then you can vomit up the demon. I mean, it's not like you ate him, so why would you vomit him up? But whatever. Don't go look at these videos. I'm so sorry I brought that up. It doesn't exist on YouTube. I'm just kidding. So this was the pattern that they would follow. And you'll see Jesus actually uses this pattern in Mark chapter 5. Because one of the occasions when he's asking the demon, he asked him his name. Let's look at this. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately uh, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now you notice it says unclean, right? Think about what we're talking about, clean and unclean. That's very important. Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. That's pretty strong, right? It's like the power team. They're, they're, he's breaking the handcuffs. I thought about demonstrating it today, but I thought it was a waste of money for me to snap chains with my bare hands, so I decided not to do it. But... Verse 5, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Right? This dude is messed up. And there's something unclean in him, this demonic force. But you notice a pattern. I'm going to bring this up now uh, as a sidestep. One of the trends that is going on today with young people is something they call cutting. It's given a, a more uh, PC name. It's called self-harm now. But essentially, they will take sharp objects and begin cutting themselves because in that they find some relief. Now, you notice what happened here. Cutting himself with stones. This is a pattern that's been going on for thousands of years. In other words, I'm not saying these people are possessed with demons. But there is an oppression there that goes on to where they find relief in the harming of themselves. I had a girl at a conference I was speaking at one time, and the Lord set her free completely, but it was hot. I mean, it was the middle of summer, and there were several thousand people at this conference, and, and she's wearing sweatshirt. I mean, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, because she was sitting like third or fourth row, so I could see her from the stage. And so she come up to me afterwards, and we would prayed for people and all that, and pulled up her sleeve, and there were scars on both arms all the way down from years of doing that. And the Lord set her free in that moment because for some reason she found relief in that. It's not just young people. You're seeing it with adults, too. It's a, it's a terrible thing. But the pattern is here. Now, verse 6, now, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him. Now, wait a minute. How could a man possessed with demons run and worship Jesus? There's still some control there. Okay? You guys see, it's not like he's just some demon puppet. He still has some control. Not a lot, but some. Verse 7, and he cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now, who's talking here? This is not the man. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? That was the first thing that the Jewish exorcists would do. They'd ask the name. And he answered, he's saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned the sea. Why was it swine? Swine were unclean. Unclean things go to unclean things, right? So those who fled 
fed the swine fled, and they told in the city and the country. And they went out to see what, is, uh, what was that happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them now it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Now, why are they afraid? Like, I'd have been a little more freaked out by the dude that's breaking chains and cutting himself, you know. But now he's sitting there, like, probably having a snack, like, talking to Jesus. He's in a suit and tie now because he's got real churchy and just having a good old time. And they're freaked out by that. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They didn't want him to do anything to do with him there. Now, the area that he is in is an area of idol worship, and so this was common practice of what they're seeing here. Verse 18, and when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all Marvel, the Decapolis, which is an area of 10 cities north of Jerusalem, where there was a lot of this kind of stuff that went on. But Jesus here followed the prescription that was normal. So this was not un uncommon for them to see this type of thing take place. They asked him his name, then they cast him out. But in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 22, Then one who was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. So that the blind and the mute man both spoke and he saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? In other words, who is the son of David? The Messiah. Could this be the Messiah? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the rulers of the demons. But this is a messianic miracle, right? A deaf and a dumb spirit has been brought out and Jesus healed him. Why is this so significant? Because without getting the name, they couldn't do it. If he can't speak, you can't get the name. This is why this is significant. But look what happens. When the Pharisees heard, how did they hear? Somebody reported it to them because the responsibility, if a messianic miracle occurred, you go to the Pharisees and they would begin to investigate it. And what was their response? He does this by Beelzebub. And you guys know what happens after that. You know, a, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So the Jews couldn't cast out a deaf and dumb spirit because the demon could not identify himself. He couldn't hear the command to leave, right? That's why. So this led then that when the Messiah came, he could do this. And we just saw this happen. So that's number two. But number three, what about the healing of birth defects? Now, the Hebrews and the Israelites, they believed that birth defects were a punishment from God for the sins of the parents, Something, what we call that generational curses. Something had happened in their ancestry that has caused this event by God to happen. Now, I can show you in Scripture where the idea of, of generational curses is nonsense, absolute nonsense. But if they did exist today, then by Christ, we are set free by those at a minimum. But I can show you where it was told to them to knock this stuff off, but they don't listen. Exodus chapter 34 Verse 5, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him, proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
So they're giving ideas here. This is where this generational curse concept comes from. And they believe that it was the sins of the father or the sins of the grandfather or the sins of somebody has caused this to happen. In other words, somebody else is bearing the punishment for the sins that were done by somebody before them. Exodus 4, verse 11. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have I not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. This is why they believe these were punishments from God. Is that he says, I make them mute, I make the deaf, I make them see, I make them blind. Right? There's a sovereignty that's going on here. So they reason from this that since it was a punishment from God, only God or the Messiah could perform this miracle. In John chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read a little bit. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Does that might meet the criteria? Yes, it does. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So if you've ever read that and wondered why do they think this way, now you know why they think this way. And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. He's referring to the Sabbath there. But who is he He's claiming to be here? He's saying, I have to do this because I am the Messiah. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. You see that washing again, right? There's a cleansing. It's a mikvah. It was very important. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not the one who has sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, Well, he is like him. But he claimed, It's me. I'm the guy. I was blind. Now I'm good. Verse 10, Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes open? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now, why did they do that? A messianic miracle had occurred. So they're, gonna, they're, they're taking him like, only God can do this. Only the Messiah. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. And they said, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. In other words, he said the same story over and over again. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Right? Well, he can't be from God. He broke God's laws. Now, I don't want to get into this here, but there was something in the, in the Jewish mind called fence laws. There were 613 laws given by God. When they were kept captive into Babylonia and all of that stuff, we know the story. When they came back out in Ezra's uh, there, the reason they were in captivity is because they didn't keep the commandments. So Ezra said, you know, it would be a good idea if we kind of expand on these a little bit. That way we don't even come close to breaking the commandments, right? So there's like hundreds of thousands of what they would call fence laws to keep them from breaking it. Like when, when Jesus' disciples were eating the heads of grain, they said, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. 
There's no law that says that. But that was one of those fence laws is like, yeah, okay, but if we touch it this far, we're not even close to actually breaking the real thing. It's the same thing here. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Absolutely it is. But the works of God couldn't be performed because it was one of those fence laws. It was man-made. So this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Why are they calling him a sinner? He didn't keep the Sabbath. And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received this sight. Now think about this. They think he's lying. All right, let's get his parents in here. We'll test him. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered him and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Mom always knows, right? That's my boy. Yeah, he sees. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. In other words, you're turning it back around. Talk to him. This, he's the one that was there. We weren't there. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So why are the parents freaking out saying, ask him? Because if they admit that this is the Messiah, they're going to be put out of the synagogue, which is not a good thing. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, God did this for you, not this man. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's what he knows. So then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's kind of a smack in the face. Oh, you want to follow him around now? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Okay, so you're, you're a disciple of his, but we follow Moses and all the laws that Moses gave, right? They're ignoring him. Then the man answered and said to him, why this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This has never happened before. Go back in scripture. You never see it happen. This is the first time. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This guy's making a case for Jesus. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? Why did they make that statement? Because he was born blind, so you must have been born in sin. You guys seeing how all of these things are beginning to make sense? It's bringing some clarity when you understand the background. And so they cast him out. And Jesus heard what they, that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you, wouldn't have, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Why were there Pharisees with them? They're investigating. A messianic miracle has occurred, so they're checking it out. That's this whole thing. They refuse to believe it. 
Now, do you think this is the first time somebody has claimed a messianic miracle? Probably not. I mean, we don't know of any specifically, at least not from Scripture, but probably not because there are a lot of guys that were Messiah figures. There's been guys in our lifetime that were Messiah figures that they believe that, that could have been the Messiah, even though they died, they could have been the Messiah, and so therefore they're waiting on them to resurrect. Okay? But what do we see here? This idea of he's being born blind by God because of sin being passed down. Only the Messiah could heal. And even though he's done that, they still refuse to believe. Now, many of the people around believe, but the Pharisees didn't believe. That's why the Pharisees keep getting involved. But there was a fourth thing that had to occur. It's the raising of the dead after the third day. In other words, on the fourth day. What the Jews believed is that the spirit of a person remained with his body for three days. They think he was either in there or was hovering over it in some capacity. After that, and during that time, he could be brought back. But on day four, he's gone off to be wherever he's going to be. And so, because the flesh began to, you know, you know, get nasty. I mean, you know, the smell and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, they couldn't raise him back. So if it were to happen... On day four, it was only by one person, and that is God or his Messiah. So when the Messiah came, they believed that this is one of the things that he would do. He would raise a person from the dead on the fourth day. So we saw that only the Messiah could cleanse the leopard. We saw that only he could cast out a deaf and dumb spirit, which we saw him do. And then certainly what we just saw, healing a man born blind, only the Messiah could do that. The fourth one is that when he comes, these are things that he'll do. They weren't believing that only he, will, he can do it. They're believing that these were the four things that the Messiah will do. Now let's look at John chapter 11, keeping all of this in mind. In verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God that the Son of Man be may be glorified through it. What's he talking about here? He's talking about this miracle. The Son of Man would be exemplified in his Messiahship. Now, verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he, heard, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, Lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? In other words, are you kidding me? You want to walk back into that place? They've been trying to kill you since before. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Okay? Jesus knew he was dead. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now, that's such a weird statement. Why is he rejoicing that for their sakes he wasn't there? Because had he been there, it would have been putting pressure on him to heal him, right? But he was a ways away. Word got to him. He waited two more days. It's for their sakes. Why is it for their sakes? Well, watch what happens. And we know the story. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb 
Four days. Right? It's the criteria. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. People are gathering around, which is typical, right? Someone dies here, family, friends gather around to help out. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. In other words, when this is all said and done, yeah, he's going to rise again then. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a great question to all of you. Do you believe that? I certainly hope so. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Who is the Christ? The Messiah. Christ is not his last name. It's his anointed one. The Son of God who has come into this world. And when she had heard, uh, had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Then she, they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. That's the verse we all memorize, right? If we only got one, it's that one because it's short. Why is he weeping? Because he's compassionate. He feels for them. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? He performed one of the miracles for the Messiah. Couldn't he have done this? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time... There is a stench. He's been dead for four days. You guys see the pattern forming. Jesus said to him, her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me that I am the Son of God, that they may believe. Now when he has said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Fourth day, he did what only the Messiah could do. And he prayed to God. He said, I know that you always hear me. And this is for their benefit. That they will know that I am the Messiah. And our mind, when we're picturing this, right, we picture something out of like one of the old mummy movies. Like he's, he's coming out, you know, walking like this. And they got to cut him loose. Well, you don't cut the mummy loose. But, but they got, I mean, that's what they said. They got to cut him loose. You know, how is he walking out? 
They're freaking out like, you want to roll back the stone? He's been dead four days. It's going to stink in there. And guess what? They're probably right. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. Okay? Do you ever forget about something in the back of your fridge? It's bad. When I was growing up, we had uh, freezers in, the, in our garage, like the deep freezers, and we went out of town for a week. And apparently we lost power. And as we were pulling in the driveway, you could smell it. We weren't in the house yet. That's a smell you'll never forget and you won't ever want to experience. So he does exactly what only the Messiah could do. But watch what happens in verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the thing that Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Why did they do that? It's a messianic miracle. It's got to be reported. The Pharisees have to declare that he's the Messiah. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. What signs is he talking about? The signs of the Messiah. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What is their concern here? It's not that he's the Messiah. It's that Rome will step in. Because if the king of the Jews is rising up and he is the Messiah... Rome will stomp that out because they are the king of the Jews right now. They're under Roman rule. That's their only concern. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now wait a minute, here's something we always overlook. The high priest claimed that Jesus was going to die for the nation of Israel, and they ignored him. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. What was the response of the Pharisees? They wanted him gone because they were more concerned about what was going on and what, in their lives than what was happening right here. But why was Jesus doing what he was doing? He was proclaiming that I am the Messiah you have waited for, and I am here, and I have come to set the captives free. Now here's the question. This is what he was doing here. But he gave a command to the disciples before he went up. And he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And he also says that many works that I have done, but you're going to do a lot more. What works was he talking about? Do we have to do works that confirm that the Messiah is here? Well, why wouldn't we? Now think about this, guys. You see this more in foreign countries than you do here. That miracles take place. Somebody is healed. I told you guys, uh, uh, Pastor Bernie that was here uh, a couple months ago, I don't remember when he was here exactly, over in Indonesia when he was there last time, he, praying for a blind person. Eyes were white, and he watches the pupil form in their eye as he's praying for them. Who can do that but God? Do you think people recognize that the Messiah has arrived? Yeah, how did they do it? Through the works. It's Jesus was making the case. He's doing all the miracles that they required for him to be the Messiah. And yet... They still refuse to accept it. Isn't that amazing? You see, the reason we're looking at this is because we are in Him. 
And if we are in him, that means we are of him. And if we are of him, we're supposed to be doing his work. He called us there his ambassadors. Like, if we're his representative, why aren't we doing the same thing? We're too afraid. We're too afraid to step out there. We're too afraid to share the gospel. We are more concerned with what people think about us than we are whether they're going to die and go to hell. I watch believers that live lives very carnally, doing things that, you know, probably shouldn't be doing. All in effort because they want to be liked, because they're not willing to stand up. I mean, if you cornered them on their beliefs, they'd tell you. But just in the general life. But we've got a very weak and powerless church today. And it's for a couple of reasons. A, we don't know the word. We don't know what the Bible says about us. B, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When John the Baptist says that there was one that comes after me that baptized in, in the Holy Spirit and power. We've lost that sight of that, of what that is and why that's important today in the church. It's not what you think it is necessarily. We want to make it something it's not. And thirdly, is we've relegated the signs of God to happen inside of church services. There's never an example of it happening inside of a synagogue. It was always in the street. In other words, we want to be touched by God, but we don't want to take the power of God into the world. There's a reason things aren't happening. We're in Him. We need to be doing things different. So now we see what He was doing and we saw why He was doing it. Well, now next week we're going to look at how this pertains to us. What does this have to do with me? Because it's so much more than just this, guys. There are people all over the world today that are going to church. It's Sunday. Hey, we'll go to church. We put in our time. We'll sing a few songs. We'll get up and we'll do these things. But our lives being transformed. Because everywhere Jesus stepped, lives were transformed. Why is that not happening for us? We're going to look at that next week. 